Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 21, The Saints Are Coming. This episode contains the first of a two-part interview with Joel Grote, Director of Ministries of the Institute for Religious Research on the topic of Mormonism. First, I want to thank those of you who've been praying for me as I try to lose enough weight to compete in my desired weight class here in, oh, just under three weeks. I've been really discouraged lately as the weight has hardly been coming off and I'm going to have to dramatically increase my energy output and decrease the number of calories I'm consuming if I hope to stand even a chance of making weight. Now, of course, I'm aware that by virtue of training for a powerlifting competition, I'm likely building muscle that, to some degree or another, is offsetting the fat I'm burning. Unfortunately, competitors are grouped by weight and not by body fat percentage, so that doesn't really help me much. I am beginning to see a change on the scale, but I've still got about 12 or 13 pounds to lose in really less than three weeks, so please do continue to keep me in your prayers. Now, in episode 20, I played the last promo in my rotation, but before throwing in the towel and beginning the rotation again, I decided to look around for another resource worth recommending. It just so happens that iTunes does actually one thing right. It shows me what other shows, those who listen to my podcast, also subscribe to. I checked one of them out, and I'm pleased, after listening to a few episodes, to recommend it to you. There is a God. You are not Him. Welcome to Faith and Reason, the apologetics, Christian-based apologetics show, where we answer difficult questions about Christianity. We expose the errors of such things as atheism, Roman Catholicism, evolution, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian science, New Age, Islam, and various other religious and secular systems. Why? Because Jesus alone is the way to truth and life, and if you don't receive him as your Savior, you're lost and you're in trouble on the Day of Judgment. Matt Slick of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry over at uh, carm.org, that's carm.org, sometimes comes across as a little abrasive, um, maybe a little politically incorrect, um, but he's a very good exegete. He does a great job of defending the historic Christian faith from its critics. You can check out his podcast by going to carm.org and clicking on radio. So do check it out, and... If you have any other resources you'd like me to promote, uh, resources that maybe aren't yours personally, but which you would like my listeners to listen to as well, email me and let me know. With that, let's move into the interview. I'm joined today by my guest, Joel Grote, Director of Ministries for the Institute for Religious Research. Thanks for joining me today, Joel. You're very welcome. I'm glad to do it, Chris. <laughs> so you just recently returned from Cuba. Is that right? How'd that go? Uh went very well. I spent uh, 18 days in Cuba. I was teaching at an evangelical Christian seminary there, uh, teaching a class on uh, discernment and um, issues related to uh, the church and some of the... Um, just some of the threats that can be there um, in terms of syncretism, dealing with some of the santeria in the country and how that impacts the church. So it was a great time with students 
and with some field workers that were also brought into the seminary for the couple weeks I was there. Awesome. I'm glad you're back safely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Glad yeah. to be back with my family. Yeah, I bet. Well, so if you don't mind, uh, I like to begin my uh, asking my guests about their testimony. Could you share that with us? Have you have you always been a Christian? How, how did the faith become real and meaningful to you? Okay, have not always been a Christian because I believe, like everybody else in the world, I was born um, spiritually dead, um, born under the wrath of God. Um, certainly had the privilege of being born into a Christian family. Uh, my parents started out as dairy farmers, and then when I was about four years old, got called into full-time Christian service. And when I was five, they moved to go to college um, and begin preparing for ministry. So I grew up on the college campus of what was then Grand Rapids um, Baptist Bible College, which is now Cornerstone University, uh, which I'm actually adjunct teaching there now. So kind of come full circle. Um, <laughs> but grew up in that Christian family, um, parents who were involved in ministry, and I was seven when... Um, Interestingly enough, not even through my parents, but through a college student who was doing a five-day Bible club, backyard Bible club, um, listened to the whole story of Jesus and his death and resurrection and realized really at that point, wow, this is something that I have to appropriate for myself. Mm. And so at seven years of age, I stayed after on the last day um, and recognized my sinfulness and asked God for his solution in Jesus Christ and accepted that on my behalf. That's great. Well, in your original email to me, you said that you've, uh, that you've been working with Mormons and with Christians for um, about 23 years. What originally led to your interest in Mormonism? What caused you to develop a passion for them and for reaching out to them? It started through uh, the man who was uh, my wife and I's small group leader at our church. Uh, we would meet every week or every other week in his house, and I knew just from being close to him um, that he had started this outreach ministry to Mormons, and uh, just kind of did it as something he was doing out of one of his desk drawers, where he um, decided to put an ad in the local paper. He had a, rel a close relative that became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, mm. and as he studied and investigated it, um, his interest and passion grew. So um, my first exposure was really having him share about some of the contacts he was having with local Mormon people, and he had a real, real compassionate heart, um, became friends with a local bishop. So he was kind of my first exposure um, to Mormonism. Uh, my wife and I, shortly after, you know, being in a small group, uh, went back to Venezuela, South America, where I grew up, to be short-term missionaries. And when I left, I remembered uh, that the Mormons were present there. I remember seeing them as a kid growing up, didn't know a lot about them. And, but I said, hey, I, I know that these people are present in the city I'm going to be in, so why don't you give me one of everything you've got so if I have the opportunity, I've got some information um, to look at. So he did that. He gave me like one of everything he had. <laughs> and I took you know, the, a lot of the classic stuff. I you know, took Where Does It Say That? and um, a book called God's Word, Final and Fallible Forever, and a number of other resources. And within my first six months there, was asked to do a leadership camp retreat for high schoolers. Wow. And when I talked to the kids in my youth group, said, what do you want me to cover? And they said, oh, you got to do something different for us. We don't want just like another Bible study. That's important. <laughs> but I said, well, tell you what, I've got all this information on Mormonism. What if I did something on that. And they're like, oh, 
sweet. <laughs> in fact, one of the guys had an uncle, I guess, who was a Mormon. And so, so I went to look and I pretty much had to write and translate all my own material um, into Spanish. And so for this three-day retreat, that's what we talked about. And the, the kids loved it. I learned a ton. And it really kind of woke my interest, uh, found myself fascinated by it. And then as a result of that, I ended up teaching a six-week series in a different local church um, on some of the same material and had to expand it again now for an adult audience. So I'd say by the time I did that, um, I was kind of hooked. <laughs> yeah. So that that was really my, my introduction to it. And at that point, had no idea that I'd go into apologetics ministry or, or would be doing this as full-time ministry. Um, that kind of came about later. Hmm. I'm curious, uh, and I didn't put this in, in the questions I sent you, but um, how, how did you get involved with the Institute for Religious Research? Well, uh, I got involved in that because when I came back from my short-term mission work, I, I had written from the field um, after I'd had these teaching opportunities. I wrote to the man who had given me the materials just to say, Thank you so much. I've used them. I've learned a lot. This is really fascinating. I understand your passion um, for both Mormon people and for ministry. And I also wrote and I asked him for a job in his packaging company um, because, you know, the ministry he was doing on the side, he was actually a business owner. And I was coming back to go to seminary, and I didn't have a job. So I had a wife who was pregnant and no job. And so I, I wrote him and never heard anything back, which was to me a little bit surprising because he was usually, you know, pretty conscientious and prompt. Hmm. So I just thought, wow, you know, who knows? But when I got back, he approached me at a friend's open house and said, so are you still looking for work for seminary? And I said, I am. He said, tell you what, what I would like to do is hire you, you know, in my plant but he said, I'd like to have you work with me in the ministry. It's growing. I can't handle it. So I want to open up an office there in the ministry and start something official and have you kind of be the point person hmm. um, because the ministry is growing and the business is growing and you can kind of set your own hours. You can you know, study. You can have use of the office equipment for any of your seminary prep and papers. So it was like, Wow, cool. It was kind of, you know, the ideal job. And he said, you've already done some study. I don't have to teach you from the ground up. So what do you think? And I said, absolutely. And, you know, he was going to pay me enough that I could, you know, live and, you know, pay my bills and my seminary. And so um, I started doing that. So the whole time I was, the three years I was in seminary then, I worked full time for what was then Gospel Truths Ministries. And still, though, really... My thought was that when I was done with seminary, I'd go back to Latin America, um, probably teach in a seminary or Bible institute there. And really, uh, even during seminary, didn't have any plans for full-time apologetic work. So you're wondering what happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, what happened was I got done with seminary and I started sending out inquiries. And two things were happening. I was sending out inquiries for possible full-time ministry work. And in the office the director of the ministry and and the president of our board were both saying, wow, what are we going to do? You've been here three years. You've developed these aspects of ministry. You're leaving a pretty big hole to fill. We're not sure what we're going to do about that. And so, um, and I'm looking for things and nothing's opening up. And the more I thought and prayed and talked about with my wife, I thought, you know, everything I'm doing, I love the only thing I'm not doing that I want to do is use my Spanish. So I asked if I could take our 
board president out and the guy who founded the ministry. And what I said to him was, well, here's the deal. You guys are looking at a difficult hole to fill. Hole to fill. I'm not sure I want to create the hole, but I have to use my Spanish. I, I'm fluent. I feel like God's given me that for a reason. So is there any way I could begin developing a Spanish-speaking, Hispanic you know, aspect resource development at least part of the time in conjunction with what I'm doing? If I can do that, I would be happy to, to stay on and commit full-time. And he said, absolutely. He said, I've already been talking to, at the time, Luke Wilson um, was our executive director. And um, he died about three years ago. Um, but he said, I've been talking to Luke, and we've already identified that as a huge need. So, oh, wow. perfect. And so I said, okay, I guess this is where I'm staying. And that was <laughs> um, that was about 20 years ago. And it's been great to watch how God has expanded um that from what was maybe 15, 20% of my time to now Hispanic international related ministry is probably 50 to 60% of my ministry commitment. And God has just opened up the doors worldwide uh, for us as a ministry. So that's incredible. That's cool. Yeah. I appreciate you taking time out of that to talk with me. Um, you know, discussing and exam- examining Mormonism, <laughs> from my experience, is an enormous endeavor. And there's just no way we could do that justice uh, in the time that we've got today. So, I'm just kind of, I'd like to give my listeners a sort of introduction. So let me start by asking you, when we talk about Mormonism, what is it that we're talking about and what familiar, familiarity might some of my listeners already have? You're right, Chris. It's a huge subject matter. And I guess in a nutshell, Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormon Church, LDS Church, all those terms kind of get used as identifiers, is a new religious movement that began really officially in 1830 by a self-proclaimed prophet named Joseph Smith, um, who then set out to what he was claiming to do was restore true Christianity back to the earth. Mm. Um, His sense and what he had received, he claimed from Revelation, was that the the true church had been lost from the face of the earth um, somewhere not long after the apostles, um, certainly you know by the time of the Dark Ages. And whereas the Reformation had attempted to reform the church, it hadn't restored key elements that were lost. So I think one of the most important things to understand about Mormonism is it sees itself um, as, a, as a restoration of Christianity, that had fallen into a total apostasy. So it was without authority, it was without power, um, it was without the full complement of truth that man needed to be able to get back to God in the way God intended. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how Mormonism still sees itself today, though it probably has softened how it addresses that issue just to be, I think, more acceptable socially and culturally. Um, and so along with that, you now have a whole host of doctrines and beliefs and cosmology that's really very unique. It's its own uh, unique religious movement, certainly springing out of a, of a Christian context and background. Mm. But Mormonism really sees itself as a distinct religious movement with uh, specific aspects that are you know, totally lacking from the rest of Christianity. 
And that's an important matter. I think an important thing for the listeners to understand is how Mormonism sees and understands itself. Yeah. And I've got a question about that a little bit later. But you mentioned some really unique um, doctrines, and I'd like to talk about some of those, the ones that um, that really differ from uh, his, the historic Christian faith. Uh, the, the first one sure. that I think that would be useful to talk about is the question of epistemology, uh, how it is that we know what we know. What is the source of knowledge for we Christians? And in contrast, what is the source of knowledge for Mormons? Okay, and when you're saying Christians, I'm going to assume you're using that term to refer to primarily evangelical Christians who hold to the Bible as their authority and affirm yes. the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. Okay, yes. just because the term Christian has become so broad. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, yeah, so just so, so our listeners understand, when we talk about Christians, that's kind of, we're narrowing it down to, you know, those who affirm the foundational elements of the Christian faith, which we'll talk about. Um, Christian epistemology is first and foremost, a Bible-based. In other words, at the core of Christian epistemology is the idea that there is a um, sovereign and good God who has chosen to reveal himself to us. And he's chosen to reveal himself to us uh, progressively in an objective revelation, hmm. meaning he's given us objective truth that's absolute, and that has been recorded and recorded in a way that we can have total confidence in the reliability of what's been given to us in the Bible. Mm. So Christian epistemology starts in the character of God and in his ability to reveal of himself and carries over into the Bible as scripture as that objectified um, revelation that can then be read and understood and known and has a single, uh, you know, a single interpretation that is the interpretive meaning that the original authors had as given by God. Hmm. And so then everything about the Christian faith is rooted in that objective source. Hmm. Um, so for us, we know something is true because it corresponds to what God, what we know God has revealed to us in the Bible. Right. And, um, and so we have other ways of knowing, certainly um, experience, um, certainly there's a subjective element to our faith, but ultimately everything goes back to, everything gets checked by that objective reality that stands outside of us. So it stands outside our feelings, it stands outside our preconceived ideas, it stands outside um, even what we've maybe been taught culturally, or religiously, yeah. um, everything goes back, and that's the grid. So if it doesn't measure up with Scripture, we don't accept it as truth. Right. I, you're welcome to do follow-up questions, but that I see is that's the that's the true Christian epistemology. Does everybody live that way consistently? <laughs> no, unfortunately, but not even us sometimes. Right, but that is that is the Christian epistemology. Right, and and what's in, in contrast? What is this? How, what is the source of knowledge for Mormons? Um, they would certainly see Scripture, revealed Scripture, as a part of that. But ultimately, when you understand Mormonism as a system for knowing spiritual truth, um, the primary epistemology is feelings. 
Hmm. Um, now, they wouldn't say it's simply crass human-related feelings, but they would say that we know things are true, especially related to spiritual truth and to Mormonism, because we get a um, an internal, subjective, experiential revelation from God. Classically, that's been called um, a burning in the bosom. Um, it's kind of a fire inside you that, that you feel. But really, I've seen that Mormonism as a whole has moved away from using that term. Hmm. It's been it's been a lot of years since I've ever heard a Mormon use the term burning in the bosom. What they will talk about is the witness of the Holy Spirit. I see. And I think part of the reason for that is because that lets them um, widen what can be applied to that experiential happening more broadly. Hmm. Because the way somebody becomes convinced that Mormonism is true is, and I'm going to say this is probably 95 to 99% of the time, it's because they have been encouraged to read the Book of Mormon, pray about the Book of Mormon, and look for some kind of internal subjective feeling, witness from the Holy Spirit confirming to them that it's true. Hmm. And and why I, why I think they've gotten away from the burning in the bosom is because my experience in talking to both Mormons and former Mormons and then people who have, who have, you know, sat through the missionary lessons is that they don't define anymore what that witness is supposed to look like or feel like, except that it's, excuse me, except that it's subjective and it's positive. Hmm. And what I think that allows um, Mormon missionaries to do is that when a person has read the Book of Mormon and prayed, Anything they experience in that context that's positive <laughs> is allowed to be interpreted as the witness of the Holy Spirit confirming to them that the Book of Mormon is true scripture. Right. Which means by extension, Joseph Smith must be a true prophet as the one who produces scripture. Meaning by extension, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints must be a true church because Joseph Smith as a true prophet founded it. Right. So when a person does have any sort of positive experiential thing related to the Book of Mormon, the Mormon missionary's response is to say, wow, God has just given you special revelation. God has spoken to you at the level of your heart to convince you that this is true. And now you know that the Book of Mormon is true, that Joseph Smith is a true prophet, and that the Mormon church is God's true church on the face of the earth. And if the person follows the Mormon logic, what they end up doing is they end up accepting everything, right. all the foundational tenets of Mormonism, on this subjective experience. And they're told that is how they will then know um, additional new truth, Yeah, is by that same sort of positive internal... And I've even had Mormon missionaries quote um, Galatians chapter 5 when I've questioned this. They've said, well, but really the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So those are all good feelings that we get from the Spirit. So that shows us that's how we know the Spirit. And, you know, and we, we go, oh, wow, hermeneutically, exegetically, <laughs> you just made, you just took that passage and totally twisted it around. But I, in all, I've had them in all sincerity multiple yeah. times, you know, say that. So that's how they're using that. Um, so, so really for most Mormons, you ask, how do you know this is true? They're going to say, because I, because, in essence, they believe God has told them because they've had this internal witness. Though there's no criteria for, you know, where did this come from? Could it come from someplace else? Could it have been something not the Spirit? Right. Um, 
Now, I have to add one caveat here, uh, because the Mormon church is not even totally consistent with this epistemology, because um, it, in their the book that all the Mormons are studying right now, Gospel Principles, they're studying it every second and third um, Sunday of the month, and they're working through it chapter by chapter. In chapter 18, which they just studied um, a month or so ago, there's a quote from one of their presidents, President Spencer W. Kimball, that talks about how you get knowledge. Hmm. And I want to go ahead and read this for our listeners because it's something I wasn't aware of, even though it's been in here. And it's and it's one of their presidents and prophets that's saying it. But it kind of juxtaposes against the typical Mormon subjective um, impression thing. Okay. So here, here's the quote. It's from page 105. If any of our listeners want to want to look it up, it's Gospel Principles, the newest edition, like 2009, page 105. And the quote says, President Spencer W. Kimball explained, quote, There must be works with faith. How foolish it would be to ask the Lord to give us knowledge, but how wise to ask the Lord's help to acquire knowledge, to study constructively, to think clearly, and to retain things that we have learned. And that's from Faith Proceeds the Miracle, 1972, page 205. Hmm. So in, in that quote, one of their presidents is saying, it's foolish to ask the Lord to give us knowledge. And yet the test of the Book of Mormon is doing just that. It's, yeah. it's asking God to give you knowledge about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. And I, you know, I would happen to agree with Spencer W. Kimball on this point. Yeah, me too. That, that what the Bible says, the way we get knowledge is we get it by studying, um, by um, approving, you know, all things, by testing the spirits, um, by there are a number of passages in the Bible that point to the fact that we're called to examine carefully and study and base our conclusions and our knowledge on that objective. So right. I, you know, people are really quick to say, well, Mormons are all just, you know, it's all about subjective. But here you've got their own prophet and president in one of their teaching manuals saying, well, you know, no, you know, for knowledge, we couldn't, we shouldn't expect the Lord to do that. So I'm just, there's an inconsistency there. And sure. I, you know, I don't want anybody to be caught saying, well, no, you know, we do believe that we do have to study. Unfortunately, they don't apply that to the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith. Sure. Well, and you know, the question I have for you is why do you think, um, are we called as Christians to uh, to study the Bible and test our subjective emotional experiences to it? I mean, what does the Bible say about um, our our hearts and our subjective emotional experiences? Are they trustworthy? Uh, what the Bible says is that um, our hearts are deceitful um, yeah. and they're desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah seventeen nine is the classic passage there, and. I think anybody who's looked at where you go if you depend on your emotions, if you depend on subjectivity, recognizes that because we're fallen, because there isn't a single part of us that isn't affected by sin, that includes our emotions and it includes um, experiential aspects. So the Bible has a number of things to say, and I think that's why transformation, spiritual transformation in the Bible is linked, especially in Romans um, chapter 12, to to renewing our minds. Right. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds, um, which is interesting because even Mormonism teaches that the glory of God is intelligence. Hmm. 
Um, and yet, when it comes to the foundational aspects of Mormonism, they want to step away from an objective, careful analysis, look investigative, and and go with the subjective approach um, first. And I, you know, I think there's good reason for that. I think that's because anybody who looks at the evidence objectively has a hard time coming away with the conclusion that the Book of Mormon is scripture, that Joseph Smith is a true prophet. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's the Bible gives us some real clear teaching about the fact that really our, our subjective emotional impressions aren't reliable. I think it, Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, mm. but in the end, it's the way of death. So we, we have to be careful. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, perhaps most notable amongst um, LDS teachings is their understanding of God. What does Mormonism teach about God, and how does this differ from what the Bible teaches? Wow, yeah, this is this is foundational, and Mormons, the Mormon understanding of who God is, and again, I you know I, I want to make a clarification here for probably the rest of what we talk about in terms of Mormon doctrine. Hmm. And that is simply what I'm going to be saying is what you can document in official teaching publications and in Mormon scriptures. It may not reflect what, you know, the Mormon that one of our listeners knows or has contact with. Um, And that's simply because the Mormon church allows for a very broad range of understanding and ideas. Um, If you are happy with the Mormon church... You can believe a lot of things that may not square with Mormon doctrine. Hmm. Yeah. So I just want to say what I'm going to talk about in terms of what Mormonism teaches is from their official published sources. But that doesn't mean that every Mormon even, excuse me, understands or knows all these things. But sure. it is official. It can be documented. So, um, when it comes to God, the Mormon Church is clear on several things. First of all, um, God has not always been God. That God was once a man like us. That goes all the way back to Joseph Smith. Um, and in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith and even in their Gospel Principles Manual, that is not a, a debatable point. And we've got articles on our website that document this, you know, chronologically, historically, from repeated Mormon sources. Mm. So the first idea about God is... God has not always been God. God was once a man like us. And he progressed from his state of mortality, even being subject to death. And he had to work his way up through an eternal, through a progression to become a God. And he is only one in a whole chain of gods that have existed. In other words, God the Father um, had a father himself, and had who had a father, who had a grandfather. And there is in Mormonism this infinite regression of gods who started out as men, which really points you to a very, I think, serious flaw in Mormon um, cosmology, which is there is no first cause in Mormonism. And if you would ask a Mormon, well, what about this? This, The answer I've I've received most frequently is, well, that just hasn't been revealed. Okay. Um, so we, we don't right. know. And, and for, and for most Mormons, that's enough. Yeah. Uh, for it, I'm amazed at how many, for how many Mormon people to be able to say, well, it hasn't been revealed. It's really not important to me. Um, is enough for them. So that's the, really the first thing about God we have to understand is, is the God of this world is simply one in 
an infinite regression back and what's going to be an infinite progression forward of gods, men who have worked their way up to godhood. Hmm. Um, God the Father, as a result of that, is still an exalted man. So he has a body of flesh and bones. That's D&C 132. I mean, not 132, D&C. Oh, great. I should have had some of the documentation with me. But Doctrine and Covenants, you know, says that, you know, God the Father has a body of flesh and bones like Mm -hmm. we do. And he has a wife because as a man, he married and part of his progression was being married for time and eternity and with his wife progressing to the state of godhood because what he has to do to continue his progression is to have spirit children who become us to populate an earth and start the whole cycle of him being God to us and us working our way back to godhood with him. Wow. So, so that, uh, in that sense, you know, Mormonism is, is very different from biblical Christianity, historic Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam for that matter, that posits, you know, only one God who is a supreme, infinite, and transcendent being who's totally other from creation, totally unique in his being, who then, you know, creates everything there is. Um, but he's always been God. He's never been a man, and he's always been totally perfect in every attribute. He's never had to progress in knowledge or information or understanding or character. Um, and so Mormonism flatly you know, rejects that view of God. Joseph Smith rejected that view of God later in his life. And unfortunately, rather than correct that, the Mormon church you know, leaders from that time on have embraced it and continued to propagate that. Though, again... Uh, there are times when Mormon leaders were, will even deny that or deny their knowledge of it, um, even in media interviews, because they've recognized that that is not Christian, and it's very hard for them to lay hold of the Christian label and hold on to something that is clearly historically and biblically not been at all associated with Christianity. Sure. Yeah. Well, well when, how about what, uh, salvation? Um, what, you know, and I ask this because I think that it plays right into the answer that you just gave about God. What does the LDS Church teach about what it means to be saved versus not saved, and, and how does this differ from biblical Christianity? Okay, biblical Christianity posits that every person is in one of two conditions. He's either, if we use you know the Apostle Paul's terms, he's either in Adam or he's in Christ. In other words, he's either lost or he's found. He's either under God's wrath or he's in God's favor. Um, he's either a child of the devil or he's an adopted child of God. So every human being falls into in either or one or two categories. And so as a result, Christianity says that, that everyone, because of Adam's sin, is born a sinner by, by birth, by choice, by practice, um, by, genera- by generational influence. Um, we all sin. And because God is a holy God, that sin totally separates us from God. It puts a an absolute disconnect, making us completely unworthy of God's favor, of God's presence, um, and of relationship with God. And, in, and instead, it leaves us under God's wrath. Um, and Romans talks very clearly about the fact that, you know, everyone is under God's wrath because everybody has sinned. Hmm. So Christianity... The key issue then, the key problem within Christianity is how do we address 
the question of how do I get out from under God's wrath and how do I enter into a state where I'm, I'm acceptable to God and worthy and in God's favor. And so our answer within Christianity is um, Jesus Christ comes and he does what no one could do for themselves. He lives a completely perfect life. And then at the end of that completely perfect life offers himself as a sacrifice to cover both God's um, anger and wrath and to pay the just penalty for um, our sin. And once he does that, that finished act of redemption and atonement becomes a gift that God is now able to offer to us. So he, God in essence says, okay, yes, here you are under my wrath, but my wrath has been appeased, and the payment for your sin has been made by my own son, so I can now in complete justice and complete mercy, offer you the gift of my son's righteousness in exchange for your sin. Hmm. And we're in essence offered the option of a double transfer, and we accept that by faith, which means all we bring to the table is our belief that God's really going to do what he's saying he's going to do. Right. Um, and so in Christianity... We, the only way to move from that position of being under God's wrath to being in his favor is accepting the gift that he holds out. And we do that in faith. We accept it in the moment we accept that by faith. All of our sin, past, present, and future, is removed from us. Um, it's paid for, covered by the blood of Christ. And we're now given the total absolute righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of our son. So immediately, we are now acceptable, worthy. Um, God can say of us what he said of his son, Jesus. This is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Right. Because now we have, that's credited. That's the, Paul uses the word credited like seven or eight times in Romans chapter four alone. And it's credited to our account. Um, and so in Christianity, the solution to man's sin problem is a gift that God pays for and offers that we accept. And when we do, there's a complete change in status, and now we're considered adopted children. And and um, and, and if I might, uh, and what does this result in after death? I mean, what is what is the manifestation of this of, of being saved uh, after death? Um, after death, what that means is we now, and for everybody, just like there's two options when they're alive of being either under wrath or under God's favor. In the afterlife, there's two options: either separation from God for all eternity, or being welcomed into the presence of God and living with God for all eternity. And so for the Christian, the result is we are now guaranteed eternal life in the presence of Heavenly Father, in the presence of God, to enjoy him forever without any of the um, any of the baggage of sin or any of the stuff that wrecks relationships in this life. Um, we have an eternity to enjoy God and one another and every good thing that God has. And that's the promise to everyone who believes. Right. Um, and, and, and obviously the alternative to those who don't accept that gift um, is then separation from God for all eternity um, in what's referred to as outer darkness or, um, you know, or hell. But it's, it's obviously a place that Jesus talks about that's very negative. Being under God's <laughs> wrath means you will be under God's wrath and, and there will be an eternity um, of consequences for that for good or evil. Okay. So, and that's, that's the basic Christian understanding. Right. How does Mormonism differ? Right. Right? <laughs> wow. Well, 
again, not, it's what we not have just to, a little, is it? <laughs> no, because it stems from how Mormons view men and God. Mm. Because since God is an existed man who's had all these spirit children, every person in Mormon cosmology, every person who lives on the earth is already a child of God. Everyone who exists is already a spirit-born son or daughter of God who's come to earth to get a body mm. and to enter into a time of mortal um, probation. And their their focus then is their goal for this life is to be the best kid they possibly can be. Yeah. And eventually make it back to God by being a good kid and obeying everything he's got. But you're already, in a sense, you're already in with God. You're born in with God. You're born a child of God. And so... Yes, they recognize that sin is a problem. They recognize that sin brought difficulty into the earth. But sin does not separate you or place you out of God's favor. It simply is an impediment to your progression. Hmm. And what they see is the result of Adam's sin is the fact that we will now all both die physically and spiritually. And physical death is a problem. Because if our goal is to, after this life, continue to progress to godhood, obviously if we die and we can't be resurrected, our progression stops. Mm. And so Jesus Christ is seen as the solution to that problem in Mormonism. In other words, when Jesus dies, his atonement totally takes care of um, this problem of our physical death because now Jesus Christ, when he dies and resurrects, guarantees resurrection to everybody, which I, Christians would agree mm. um, that. But for the Mormon, what that means is everybody is now resurrected to continue their progression um, into one of three primary kingdoms. And Mormonism has in the afterlife three kingdoms, three heavens. Um, they call them three degrees of glory. But it all means kind of the same thing. It's all in essence, it's a heaven. Hmm. And they have uh, the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the celestial kingdom. And there's groups of people that go to each one. But each one is a kingdom. And when it comes to salvation, Mormonism pretty much presents a universalism. In other words, everybody is going to be saved, whether they accept Christ or reject Christ or not, whether they have faith in Christ. Um, a person can live their whole life um, hating God, hating Christ, doing everything they can evil. And at the end of it all, at the end of the day, as long as they haven't become a Mormon, um, we'll get to that in a second. Hmm. But if they never become a Mormon, the worst scenario that will happen is after they die, they will have to spend the most common understanding is they'll have to spend like the millennium or a thousand years in kind of a torment in a spiritual prison where they'll pay for their own sins. Hmm. But once the time period is gone, they then get the rest of eternity in at the very least, the lowest kingdom, the celestial kingdom. And even that celestial kingdom is a paradise far, far beyond compare of this earth. It'll be a perfect earthly paradise where the Holy spirit, will be in charge of it. So they won't have access to Jesus Christ or God the Father. They're in upper kingdoms. But even the worst people, even people like Hitler, Mussolini, Idi Amin, you take the worst of your dictators, all of them, once they've paid for their own sins for a limited time period, a thousand years is usually what's considered 
then they're 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 set free. They're they're given eternal life in a heaven for them. Um, and so Mormonism presents basically universalism. Everybody gets saved. Um, faith in Christ is not necessary. Belief in Christ is not necessary for any of that. And um, and so you've got then good people get the next level up kingdom where Jesus will be. And again, um, whether they have faith in Christ or not, they're going to get a kingdom. Works comes into play only really as it relates to progression to godhood. So if you want to progress to godhood, then yes, then there are works that you have to do to get that, what they call exaltation, Hmm. highest level of salvation in the celestial kingdom in the presence of Heavenly Father. So if you want eternal life in the presence of Heavenly Father, if you want to progress to become a god, if you want to have your family all together for all eternity then yes, you, there are works that you have to follow as prescribed by the Mormon church. Joining the church, being baptized in the church, um, all that sort of thing. But that's only for progression to godhood. Yeah. So that, that's, it's kind of a radical view of man's plight. And so really what the atonement of Christ does is it provides resurrection to everybody and they would say that's a gift of grace because it's undeserved, but there's no faith required. Um, and that's why if you ask a Mormon, so do you believe in salvation by grace alone? Most Mormons who have talked to Christians will say, oh, absolutely, yes. Our church teaches salvation by grace. But what they're meaning is everybody gets a resurrection that's going to result in them going to some kind of heaven. Right. That's not salvation by grace through faith. So it's, it's really important. What people need to understand when they deal with Mormonism is that most of the terms that are common to Christianity have radically different um, meanings, yeah. radically different definitions within Mormonism. Same terms, uh, different definition, different application. And if you don't kind of push for some of that, you could talk to a Mormon, and I've had it happen. I, I've had a Mormon missionary in my office, and I started talking to him, and he even asked me, he said, so why... You know, why are you guys doing this? Why do you have this information against us? What, you know, what's the problem here? Aren't we Christians like you? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Um, do you believe in salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone? And he said, absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, knowing what I knew about Mormonism, I was like, are you serious? <laughs> and fortunately, I knew the questions to ask him, and by the time... I'd asked him four or five questions. Well, it came down to, well, no, there's no way that if you never become a Mormon and you never go through all the Mormon rituals, you're ever going to have eternal life in the presence of Heavenly Father like I'm going to have. Right. But that took some, that took some fairly pointed, yeah, questions and digging to, to come to that. Otherwise, he would have been happy to leave it with that broad affirmation. So sure. people just need to be aware of that. Yeah. So. Yeah, and you know we could spend another, uh, you know, another forty-five minutes talking about other big differences between Mormonism and the Christian faith, and and I'll I'll do that in future episodes. But the the, the next question I have for you is, well, so after hearing all of that, I, I would hope that my listeners would be um, amazed that anybody could think this is just another form of Christianity, which many do. Um, but but the question I have is, what has contributed to this misconception? Has has the church, has the Latter Day Saint Church, always 
sort of consider itself just another denomination within Christendom? Oh, absolutely not. In fact, when Mormonism first appeared on the scene, Mormon leaders came out strongly um, in terms of how distinct they were, um, the fact that they, you know, they were not part of apostate Christendom. They were the only true church. And really, um, the church was something that was, excuse me, um, was almost, you know, to be decried. Um, it, it's really fascinating to look at some of the quotes of, you know, of early leaders in the Mormon church and what they, you know, what they had to say about how they viewed Christianity. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll just give you two examples real quick sure. from, from theirs. Um, Orson Pratt, who is an early Mormon apostle, um, in a work that he wrote, said that the Roman Catholic Church never had authority. It was founded by the devil. The Protestant reformers did not restore the church, and their authority came from the Catholics, who only had authority from the devil. Wow. Um, John Taylor, um, another uh, Mormon apostle and then eventually a Mormon president, said this, and this is from Journal of Discourses, Volume 6, page 167. Um, he said, quote, We talk about Christianity, but it is a perfect pack of nonsense. It is a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. It is as corrupt as hell, and the devil could not invent a better engine to spread his work than the Christianity of the 19th century. Hmm. Now, that rhetoric um, became more and more toned down as the Mormon church moved more and more into the mainstream. Obviously, that's back in 1858. So the Mormons are practicing polygamy. They're out in the Utah Territory. At this point, they haven't been threatened you know, with losing, you know, everything. They have not really moved into the mainstream. They're a separate group. As they move into the mainstream, you begin to see them softening the rhetoric and wanting to look for this inclusion in the larger Christian community and wanting acceptance because they need it for their proselytism to be acceptable. Hmm. Because in the United States, if you come out and say, you know, no, we're not Christian. We're a different religion. You know, we have beliefs that are totally contrary. You know, we basically deny all the foundational tenets of Christianity. The great majority of people are going to say, oh, okay, well, thanks. Sorry, I'm not interested. Yeah. And so Mormon has been working to retool itself to where the place now, where it's like one of the most offensive things you can say to a Mormon is to imply or say that, something about his faith or his church is not Christian. Right. And it's like them's fighting words. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, now they, they won't say that they are another denomination, but they certainly want that inclusion. And they fought very hard um, to kind of really brand themselves. You know, we talk about branding today mm. and, and promoting your brand and even, you know, to changing their logo a number of years back. So it's the Church of Jesus Christ with Jesus Christ in predominantly larger letters, <laughs> you know, of Latter-day Saints. Um, adding to the Book of Mormon, the, it used to say the Book of Mormon, they added to the Book of Mormon the cover of every Book of Mormon now says the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus right. Christ. So you see these moves, and even teaching their own people. I mean, so it's not just an external thing, it's internally 
the leadership has been repeating and repeating and wanting its own members to see themselves as Christian so that their own membership rankles. You can almost watch the hairs, you know, rise on the back of their neck if you start talking about something isn't Christian or something. Um, so, yeah, that, that's been a fairly significant change in Mormon self-perception and Mormon public perception. Sure. You know, it's funny. I, I uh, recently had a physical therapist uh, appointment, and uh, at one point, I I told him I, I came out of the closet and said I, I was a Christian. He goes, "Oh, you don't have to come out of the closet. I'm a Christian too." And it only took me a minute or two to find out that he was actually a, a Mormon. So they definitely have. Um, they really pushed this. And and I guess the question that I have for you is, uh, is it is it enough to just say that you believe in Jesus Christ? Does that is that make somebody a Christian? Uh, I guess a lot of it depends on how you're defining Jesus Christ and what you mean by believe, mm. because um, a Hare Krishna is believe in Jesus Christ. Mm. They believe that Jesus was an ascended master, an avatar, um, a way shower. They believe that he existed. Um, but their belief in Jesus Christ is not what we'd call a saving faith belief. Yeah. Um, Muslims believe in Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus Christ is a prophet. They believe that he's um, talked about in in the New Testament. Um, they believe that you know that that he's a true prophet of God, even. And yet, Muslims do not exercise a belief in Jesus Christ that is a belief that results in in saving faith and um, a reconciliation. To God, yeah. so in that sense, I think yes, Mormons absolutely absolutely do believe in Jesus Christ. But do they believe that Jesus Christ is the complete and only answer to um, the fact that they are under wrath, and that what Jesus Christ, how he lived, and what he did on the cross? is the only thing that can satisfy that wrath of God and to take that as a gift through faith in him is the only way you have a hope of escaping what they term outer darkness. That's kind of their term for hell. Boy, I don't find a lot of Mormons that believe that way. <laughs> yeah. uh, most Mormons believe that everybody's going to get a heaven and that really faith alone in Jesus as a way of making you worthy before God the Father. And I like using the term worthy because Mormons are big on worthiness. Mm. They do have a sense that they need to be worthy of Heavenly Father. Um, but they think that worthiness comes once they have placed their faith in Jesus for their you know, resurrection. That worthiness is something they earn by what they do and how they live. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, um, I think, because they don't understand the sinfulness of sin and how deeply rooted it is in us, um, they they don't really they don't believe in Jesus the same way that evangelical Christians and you know Christians historically have done that. Yeah. I, I guess I'll I'll guess I'll leave it at that. You're welcome to ask <laughs> follow-up questions if you want, but no, no, no. I, I agree with you. You know, I could call this microphone that I'm speaking into Jesus Christ, and that doesn't make me a Christian. So, I think that who it is, the object of our faith is is you know what determines whether or not 
uh, we can we can really call ourselves Christian and the nature of our faith as well. And I think you did a great job of explaining that. All right, so in that first half of the interview, we talked about Joel Grote and the Institute for Religious Research, and then we talked about some of Mormonism's uh, doctrines which most deviate from the Christian faith. And in the second half of the interview, which you'll find in episode 22, called Mr. Smith, we'll talk about the history of Mormonism, particularly the history of Joseph Smith, and we'll talk about how to witness to Mormons. So give yourself a break uh, and come back refreshed and ready to listen to part two of the interview in episode 22. Until then... <laughs>